Well, good morning, everyone. Yes, I love that. Thank you. My name's Aaron Camp. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Fellowship, and it's my privilege to preach this morning. We're going to start off by um, reading 1 Peter 2. We're still in 1 Peter. We're going to continue the study today. So go ahead and turn there if you brought your Bibles. I think it'll be up here on the screen as well. Today we'll be focusing on verses 11 and 12, but we'll start our reading in verse 9. All right, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's bow together and take this time to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, will you calm our hearts, prepare our ears to hear. I ask that you would help us look past distractions that may present themselves, help us from temptation to let our minds drift, help us to be encouraged to know that faithfully over the last 11 years, you have been at work in this place. And so today, we know that as we look to your word, Your Holy Spirit will be at work among us. Father, will you give me clarity of speech, faithfulness to your word in our time together. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Can you think of a time that you've been urged to do something? It's probably fairly eventful. I mean, day after day, we're, you know, told to do stuff and Sometimes we're even commanded to do stuff, but I'm talking about, like, urged to do something. Out of curiosity, just to kind of get a sense of what that word means, I googled urging and then switched to the news tab to see what popped up. And here were some of the results. Ukrainian President Zelensky urged support for his country from European leaders as they experience invasion. Another was about first responders in Atlanta urging locals to donate blood due to critically low shortages and low supplies. And as you can see from these examples, urging here carries a little more weight to it than just a suggestion. It's a little bit more than just requesting. For both of these examples, the stakes are high. And our passage today begins with a plea of sorts, a passionate plea even. What we see here in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 is a passionate, caring plea characterized by loving kindness to a people that Peter has been called to care for, experiencing suffering. In light of that, here's what I believe the main point of the passage today. I'm just going to like begin by stating it, and the rest of the time we'll be walking through the passage to see some observations from it. So here we go. 
Believers as exiles should live faithfully in this world. By faithfully, I'm referring to holy living. They should live faithfully in this world for the purpose of their soul's preservation, the good of those who will believe, and the glory of God. I'm going to say it one more time without interruption this time. Believers as exiles should live faithfully in this world for the purpose of their soul's preservation, the good of those who will believe, and the glory of the Lord. For the rest of our time today, I want to deconstruct that sentence a little bit by highlighting three observations from the passage. We're going to jump right into observation number one. Observation number one is the believer's identity defined, beloved exiles. This is seen right at the beginning of our passage. We don't have to go far. And it's almost like a new salutation in the letter. It's like here in the first few verses of chapter two, there's this readdress of beloved Verse 11 begins with, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. From the get-go, I need to be clear that I'm not attempting a comprehensive explanation of the believer's identity right now. It's going to be what's located here in the text. Our identity as believers is complex. For instance, we're free and we're forgiven, but we're still subject to temptation and sinning. We're special And we're set apart, but it's not because of some inherent goodness or morality on our own. We're special because we're linked to Christ, right? That's unique. It's a little paradoxical in nature. But that complex and seemingly paradoxical position should not keep us from seeing something really amazing from this passage. Something really special. This portion of the letter is directed to a specific group of people. People living as sojourners and exiles. People who do not belong here. People who are not recognized as part of the community. People who are moved around, sometimes by force, sometimes by need. People who don't have a seat at the table, so to speak. It's important to note that we're not exiles because we don't belong on earth. We've been put here. We were made here. We live here. We leave here for a time, but actually we'll be coming back here at the end of time, the new heaven, new earth. So this isn't a statement that we're exiles because we're physically present on earth. It's actually really important that we make that distinction or else we start to believe that our home is some, you know, disconnected, ethereal experience in heaven just as spirits forever. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. We'll actually return to bodies here on earth. So that's not what exile means here. Well, then what does exile mean? It means that we don't belong to the current administration or management of this planet, of this place. I'm not talking about American politics here. I'm talking about something way bigger than that. The Bible is very clear that the present powers, the economic, the spiritual, the angelic, the present system is not for us, ultimately. We're not citizens of it. We're exiles and sojourners because we await the fulfillment of promises and the receiving of an inheritance, a better country, a better system, and a better leader. 
That's our future. That's why we're exiles. And as important as understanding the concept of sojourner or exile may be, there's something even more beautiful about this passage related to our identity. And this is seen in the very first word of verse 11. Beloved. You who are exiles here and sojourners in this place are also beloved. This isn't just a nice thing that Peter is saying to his friends. No, it's a name that he calls suffering believers in exile because that's how God sees them and that's how God sees us. As we were reminded last week by Jared, God has chosen to make his presence specially known by indwelling his people as living stones, not in a tent or a temple. And he expanded that plan of redemption beyond the nation and people of Israel and extended his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy to Gentiles like us. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Believer, beloved exile, minor adjustments are not in King Jesus' plan for you. There's no tweaking of the system to reach a utopia here. There's no panacea to remedy this system. His resurrection set the course for complete renewal. Not tweaking here or there, not massaging this current system, but the removal of the curse and banishment of sin and death forever. He'll punish those who oppose him and try to replace him as God. And his plan includes the healing and restoration of the cosmos, of the universe, of reality as we know it. There's no tweaking going on. There's removal for something better. We think too small sometimes. Our real heritage, our true destiny, our future home is rooted in God's love for us. And those promises are sure. Beloved exile, sure. The concept is paradoxical. But it's world-changing. We are specially, uniquely, and mercifully loved. And therefore, this brokenness is not for us. I'm going to jump into the next observation. It's tied to the first. We'll go ahead and start with the next one. Number two, the believer's instruction given, live holy lives. So now we kind of know who Peter is talking to, this category of beloved exile. And we turn to what is being said to them. The beloved exile is being urged to do something. In a way, there's kind of this one command given in the next few verses, but from two different angles. We have a negative statement and we have a positive statement. And those are both related to how we act. So we'll look briefly at both, and there's some reasons given by Peter that we'll investigate a little bit too. So we'll start with the negative one first. First, we see that he is urging the believer to abstain from passions of the flesh. Listen again to verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, 
identity, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So here, the beloved exile is told what not to do. The believer is told to abstain from something. Don't do it. Flee it. Oppose it. Stop it. Well, what are we as believers supposed to flee? What are we supposed to avoid? The passions of the flesh. It's actually really important that we break down that phrase because our brains kind of make some understandable associations with those words, passion and flesh. And that may not be exactly helpful to understanding the point of this phrase. Passions here is the same word used in James 1, and it means desires. Let me read James 1, 13 through 15 to make the connection. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James is talking about why we fall into temptation. And he links his whole argument to desire. When, when we see that the uh, flesh, not the spirit, takes control, it opens the door to sin. And eventually, its full effect is that act of rebellion, that act of sin, which leads to death. So we see that the passions of the flesh here would be more rightly understood as desires that are not in line with the spirit. In that sense, it's more of a contrast with the affections and the activities of the Holy Spirit than a reference to salacious and sensual living. Now, you can keep those items on the list of sins. They're not excluded from what we're talking about here. But actually, this list is a little more general. The passions of the flesh is a broader category. And frankly, that lets fewer of us off the hook. In fact, we see a few examples of lists of sin here in 1 Peter. Some are outward, they're obvious, they're examples of debauchery and public failing. Some are a little more subtle, matters of the heart. Listen to 1 Peter 2.1 from a few weeks ago. Kevin just spoke on this two weeks ago. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. That list is just more hidden. If you look at it, some of these things are completely unknown to the victim, unknown to the community when they're actually taking place, and may never be known until the judgment seat. They aren't as obvious as public drunkenness, They're not as obvious as blasphemies. They're not as obvious as physical violence that someone can see and experience and freak out about. But the fleshly heart can still have trouble resisting these things. Verse 11 explains that these desires, they wage war against your soul. Literally, they serve as soldiers against you. When I hear soldiers against you and I think of kind of the horrific nature of allowing sin to just like persist in your life, my brain can't get away from the imagery of a massive monstrous army, the Urukai, the trolls, the orcs, and the wild men marching out of Isengard. 
It's something that I think the film adaptations of The Two Towers did an amazing job of, of just showing the ferocity, the monstrosity of these creatures marching towards Helm Deep to assail the heroes. On the intimidation scale of 1 to 10, you're watching it and you're just like, this is an 11. This is, this is intense. When we talk about moving towards embracing, enacting, nurturing the passions of the flesh, this passage today paints the picture that we're walking into, walking towards, marching towards an onslaught of enemies. Sinful passions are not harmless things to play with. They're a reason to put on your armor and get ready for battle. They are killers. And they serve as soldiers against you. I think this is why Peter speaks with such urgency. Peter is urging beloved exiles, and by extension, us, not just the people he talked to originally, to you and I, because he cares deeply for the souls of beloved exiles. And more importantly, God does. It's right to think of sin as dirty. It's right to think of sin as dangerous. It's right to think of sin as killing, because it is. Sinful passions war against your soul. The world may call it a mistake. They may call it an illness. They may say it's just another thing that happened. But the Bible calls it cosmic rebellion. Falling short. Soul destruction. Don't ignore, don't coddle, don't make light of sin. It's a killer. But also remember, you are not your sin. God doesn't banish his beloved exiles. God doesn't turn his face away from his beloved exiles. He doesn't hate his beloved exiles. No, in fact, he sent his son, Jesus, to die for beloved exiles. So that when the passions of flesh wage war against us, we can fight. And when we fall, we can confess, turn, and be restored. God raised Jesus up on the third day so that exiles like you and me may experience new life, a new life that culminates not only in the destruction of uh, fleshly passions, but also to experience glorification in his presence. It's an amazing promise. You are responsible for your sin, but you are not your sin. Remember, this warning is not here because Peter, or more importantly, God, doesn't like you or wants to put you down. It's here because God wants to preserve your soul. He wants us to grow apart from sin, to be healed, to be strengthened, to lean in more to him. And we're urged to do so for our soul preservation. We're urged to fight by his power. But as usual, It's not all about us. 
It's not all about you. God has another command here. We've just looked at the negative side. We need to look at the positive side to see this from another perspective. In light of that, let's look to the last portion of the passage. And this will be observation number three. The believer's impact explained. The glory of God displayed. We'll start in verse 12 now, and it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a few pieces here that need special explanation, but right from the beginning, we get the positive exhortation, and I think it's pretty clear. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Peter is drawing on the chosen people, exile language, and Peter refers to the unbeliever as a Gentile, which is kind of funny because the majority of people that are in this church that he's writing to, that are part of the churches that are receiving the letter, are actually probably ethnic Gentiles. They're not Jews in the first place. But now, as believers, they're actually experiencing the sojourner and exilic experience in their context. They're outsiders now. They've been removed because of their new place in Christ. They're no longer down at the pagan temple every other week. They're being pushed out. And so he's referring to the unbelievers as Gentiles, and now he's making a connection for the new Israel for these people that are actually non-Jews. So in this context, Peter is telling the beloved exiles there that the way they should act should be described by their community, Uh, by the town they're in, by where they work, where they worship. I don't think they had coffee back then, but for us maybe where we get coffee, that interaction should be described as honorable. I mean, that kind of feels fancy to my ears. I don't use the word honorable a lot. I don't hear it a lot. I think of like your honor and like addressing a judge or something. I don't know what that says about me, that my first thing that I hear is like a court setting. Um. Or maybe like the honorable Mr. So-and-so being announced at some fancy event and they start walking down the red carpet. I also don't belong there. Either way, I, as I was reading it, I was kind of thinking um, like maybe there's some use of the word honorable here that's nuanced or unique. And you know, I'll do this word study and as I dig in, I'll find that there's this really cool insight. And Bad news, no. It's, it just, it kind of means what you think honorable would mean. Um, it means right, good, straight, correct, demonstrating or being worthy of honor. Okay, cool. So what's being said is you're no longer Gentiles. You're no longer unbelievers. You aren't characterized by the constant desires of the flesh or passions of the flesh. You're believers. You're beloved exiles. And the way you act should be characterized as worthy of honor. That should be the general feel of the way that you're living. But we need to turn to the next section to figure out why. So why why should it be that way? Peter says, so that, that's a purpose statement, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, the first part's pretty easy, right? When they speak against you as evildoers means when they say you're bad guys or when they accuse you, and we can track with that. The next phrase isn't all that complicated either. 
they may see your good deeds. So they, they experience, they, they take account of what you're doing. I do want to make a quick distinction though. I mean, this passage is dealing specifically with the situation that believers are doing good things and the world is calling it evil, right? This passage is not focusing on the fact that believers do bad things sometimes. I just want to make a caveat here that that's also true. Believers are not perfect and we should be ready to admit that. We are beloved, but we are severely imperfect. Church isn't for people who have it all right, right? This passage is dealing specifically with the times in this world, in this system, that you actually do what is right, but you're accused of doing what's wrong. Then there's this last phrase. And glorify God on the day of visitation. I'm going to be straight up with you. As I was kind of preparing this sermon and I read that the first time, I kind of just went, what? Huh? It feels like such a straightforward passage. And then the last line is like, oh, here's a little phrase that isn't used anywhere else in the Old Testament or New Testament exactly like this. Awesome. It puts us in a bit of an exegetical pickle. Some of my favorite and most trusted authors, commentators, pastors, and theologians are right here with me. They disagree on what this means. And that's okay. I'm fairly certain that this past week I didn't crack the code. Hey, Dr. Piper, just letting you know I got this solved. Dr. Grudem, yeah, this was easy. No, I recognize that. I actually really appreciate that the word of God has kind of these, I like the word paradox, so I'm going to say it again, this paradox, which is the perspicuity of scripture. That's a fancy way of saying that the word of God is clear. It's understandable. The main point, the main things we need to do, the gospel, the core, is understandable. That's a beautiful thing. But the word of God is vast and deep, too. And phrases like this remind us all, new believers and seasoned scholars alike, that we must be humble when we approach the word of God. I think there are two ways to understand the phrase day of visitation. These are two of my favorite ways. And though I'm not 100% certain, I think there is one that makes a little more sense linguistically and in the context. The first way to read this, in some ways, is a very natural reading. Is the day of visitation is clearly the day of Jesus' future return, right? Peter has been talking about the future promises of God being fulfilled and that these beloved exiles, they need to know that their actions now will have eternal impact. It means that when Christ is revealed at the end of days, all knees will bow and glorify God. And everyone will acknowledge that believers weren't actually bad guys and that God had this amazing plan through the church and they got it wrong. Now, I don't think that's false. I think that's something that will happen. But it may not be what Peter's talking about here. This first argument is based almost entirely on the phrase being the day of visitation, the specific day that God visits. But that's not exactly what's happening in the original languages, and it's why I have pause. 
Theologian and interpreter Wayne Grudem, he helpfully points out that the article in Greek is not the definite article, the, but it remains indefinite. So this passage could be equally rendered and glorify God on a day of visitation. And that distinction actually makes a difference. It opens the door to another interpretation. Peter may be talking about a day that a Gentile or unbeliever is visited by God for regeneration, not the final appearance of Christ at the end of times. The practical, down-to-earth kind of description of how that would play out would be that our gospel hospitality, literally just like handing a key to an unbelieving neighbor and saying like, be in our house. You're not having a meal with anybody? Be in our place, okay? Our acts of mercy or kindness when we gather together as a small group, as a group of friends, or as a family, or as an individual, and we do something just because we love people because Jesus loved people. Or our good deeds, enabled and gifted by the Spirit, that those specific acts would actually have an impact on unbelievers. And that day might be the day that the unbeliever is visited by God and saved. So which one's right? Like I said, I don't think I've solved this today. I picked the one that makes sense to me. So we'll go with that for now. I I prefer the rendering of on a day when God visits. So I'm going to try a restatement here of this verse to kind of explain the heart of what's going on here. Because we want to continue the sermon. I'm not going to ask for somebody to rebuttal my view here or anything. But I think there's a way to move forward without maybe perfectly solving it. And here's a restatement that I think helps. Beloved exile, when they say you're bad guys, when they accuse you of evil, some actually will take account of your honorable living and will glorify God when he comes to visit them. I think this rendering is helpful because it leaves open the door to both the present impact of God working through your life and equally the future implications that someday every knee will truly bow. Everyone will acknowledge that God was right, his plan is wonderful, and that he deserves all glory. Jesus will be rightfully thought of one day by every person that's ever existed. The call to fight sin and to live honorably is bigger than you. I think that's really what's going on here. No matter which interpretation you choose, the Christian faith and specifically the spirit-driven acts of the beloved exile are not insular. It's not just a private practice. You're part of something bigger, something with eternal impact. Yes, there is soul preservation. We just learned that as we talked about the kind of negative side of abstaining. But there's something bigger. This is for the purpose of seeing God worshipped as he should be. So where do we go from here? How does this text relate to the rest of 1 Peter? I think it's an important note to make. I don't want to steal anybody's thunder for future sermons, but this passage, outside of just the clear teaching that we heard from Peter today, it also lays the foundation for the rest of the book in many ways. From this point on, Peter kind of goes from his arguments 
to some of the practical outworkings of what these, you know, honorable living, what honorable living looks like. And this set of verses is a doorway to the rest of 1 Peter in many ways. So here, pastor and theologian Dave Helm gets some really helpful insights on this when he says, in a very real way, these two verses function as the threshold to the remainder of the letter. Enter through them, and you enter fully into the home of First Peter, where rooms upon rooms explore how the beloved are to live. He goes on, Peter will take us into the rooms of the Christian's relationship to society and government, employment, and marriage. However, in these two verses, we arrive merely at the threshold of Peter's home. So what I started today is just the beginning of what will continue on for weeks. We start to unveil what stepping into these specific aspects of life, what honorable living looks like in those contexts. What soul preservation and simultaneously what God glorification looks like in our lives. So in light of that, Hope Fellowship, as we go forward into the series and more importantly, as we go out into the world as beloved exiles. Let's keep these three things in mind. First, remember your identity as a beloved exile. Remember, you don't belong here. God has future promises for you that exceed any small-mindedness that we can take part of in thinking that this is it. It's not. And praise God, our best days are yet to come. Secondly, let's remember our calling to live gospel-consistent, soul-preserving lives, abstaining from fleshly passions. This is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is done because of the first work of regeneration. But God is calling you to act on it, to look like part of the family. And lastly, let's recognize the eternal, God-glorifying impact of honorable living. Again, not only for our soul's preservation, but for the testimony to those who do not know Christ yet in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, and all across the world. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for this time together. It's important, not because we gathered here and set aside time, It's not important because I'm up here. It's important because you're at work in this place. That's what makes this special. And so we can thank you for that. And we can thank you that when we feel like an exile, when we feel the offness, the fallenness, the otherness that we desire, you have purpose behind it. You call us beloved. Thank you that your promises are sure. Thank you that our best days are yet to come. Thank you that there's purpose and grace to be experienced in our day-to-day activities. Because you care about our souls and because you're calling us to partake in seeing more worshipers fall at your feet. Father, may this church be faithful in that. May we be faithful to proclaim Jesus right here to the ends of the earth. And may our church partake in every way that's appropriate to see that happen for your glory, Lord. We want you to be glorified and will you use these people and this church to make it so. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.